Water Cooler podcast this week, what should be at the top of Prime Minister Scott Morrison's in-tray? Are the unions the real vested interest in Australian politics? I'll be talking to uh, John Slater about that later. But first, welcome Fred Paul, Communications Director of Menzies Research Centre, and I'm Nick Cater. Uh, Fred, we, we tend not to uh, to get involved in the politics so much as the policy. It's not been the prettiest political week, has it? No, it hasn't. It, and it was the backdrop to our wonderful event on the night on Tuesday night this week. Like you say, we like policy. We don't like politics that much. It's not our forte. But let's. I think there's plenty of reasons to be optimistic after today. I have a lot of reasons to be optimistic. There's been some real hyperbole around that this has been, you know, the worst week ever for democracy. The the worst crisis in in the Liberal Party. I tend to take a more optimistic view. I think this has been a brilliant week for democracy. Well, it's a test to our constitution, really, isn't it? I mean, we are facing a a serious confrontation within the government that's in... within the party that's in power. And look at the orderly transition. The orderly transition. Malcolm Turnbull left quite happily this afternoon... I don't know about happily, but he, <laughs> <laughs> he did he leave. He had a smile on his face. Look, we did it without a civil war, didn't exactly. we? I mean, which yes. is, is not possible in a lot of countries in the world. And it was a relatively swift transi- transition in the, in the scheme of things. Uh, but my point is that, um, I mean, yes, we've had, we, this is the sixth change of prime minister in 10 years. We've had five prime ministers, six transitions. Only one of those has occurred through the ballot box, unless I've counted them wrong. Uh, and people say, well, that's not democratic. I, I think it's it's very democratic because, you know, what what at, at heart the reason, many reasons, of course, why MPs decided to change their leader, but at heart is the fact that he was not doing well at the polls. You know, how many successive news polls I've lost count. But, but uh, and so MPs start to worry about their seats and they think, I want to keep my job. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's uh, obviously there's a lot of selfish motivation in that, a lot of personal self-interest. But on the other hand, they are trying, trying desperately to keep up with the people. If the people don't like what's going on, they've got to make changes. What do you think would have happened, Nick, today if the referendum in 99 had gone ahead for a republic? What might have happened today? It could have been a, a quite a, a different outcome. It, look, that's, that's, that's the problem at, at the heart of it with changing to a republic. It's a fundamental change for our constitution, shifting away from a constitutional monarchy. Um, and 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 possibly ended up with a much more activist, much more involved president. So well, if we'd had a president with a popular mandate, the Australians are today extremely annoyed with their government. And if there was a president with a popular mandate, he might have sacked the government. Mm. We well, might we might be facing an election in the next three weeks. I mean, if the president was uh, you know had been appointed by the previous Labor administration. Uh, he would have taken the opportunity to get rid of the government and install a Labor government in three or four weeks' time. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So four cheers for democracy, I think, today. Yes, and, uh, and four for cheers for the Australian constitution. Australia does things so very yeah. well. But look, I think, I think, obviously, I think the new Prime Minister has to reset policy. There has to be a resetting policy. What should he do? I, in my view, we don't, need, we don't need basically a radical review of the settings. I think on most policies we've got it, the Liberal Party have got it about right. I think the the changes have got to come in emphasis and in recognising community concerns. So we could go through them one by one. Uh, energy policy, uh, clearly we've got to recognise that we won't 
we shouldn't be uh, making meeting our Paris commitments top of the agenda. It should come a very distant third, and I mean a very distant third, to uh, domestic concerns about price and reliability. And as we discussed in our report, you cannot do all three. Can and can we build a? Can we get started on building another coal-fired power station somewhere in the nation? What do you think? Yeah, well, there's definitely scope for the government uh, underwriting alone. I wouldn't want to see the government building one, but if a private sector company wants to put its money there, uh, then then the government needs to give them confidence they'll get a return. Then sure, we can look at that. We could look at gas, particular gas investment in gas. The other debate I think we've got to start off now is nuclear. Uh, and uh, I think all the, a lot of the objections to nuclear on safety grounds have gone because people realise that the new technology is very much more safe and, and low-key, low and we also know how reliable it is. At the risk of them sounding like the, the canaries in this particular uranium mine, um, I think the best proposal would be to do it in Western Australia. They have their own independent uh, um, power network over there, energy network over there. And uh, and they've got they've got uranium over there, um, and it, you know it would be a pretty good case study, I think. I think so. Look, and and, and the thing is, uh, you know, it takes it's going to take a good ten years uh, to get nuclear in place. But if you go back ten years, ten years ago, we would, you know, the Rudd government was just introducing the renewable energy targets, which have been, you know, much of the cause of our woes that's introduced all these problems we have with unreliable power. If instead they'd chosen at that point to go the nuclear route, we would probably now have considerably cheaper energy. There would have been considerably less, if any, government subsidies in it. Most of the investment would have come from the private sector, and we'd have a long-term energy future ahead of us. Now, we didn't do those things. We didn't take those smart decisions 10 years ago, but why not take them now? Yeah, wouldn't it be nice to be saying in 10 years' time, aren't we glad we made that decision back then? Yeah, indeed. So next, immigration? Immigration, well, uh, we you know clearly, clearly this is an area of great concern in the public. I don't think it's immigration as such. I just think it's the the, the perception of the size of immigration and its consequences with, uh, you know, congestion and dare I say crime. There's a linking of crime with immigration, which is definitely unfair on almost every migrant who comes here. But there are there are clearly problems in Melbourne with specific ethnic groups. I would like a leader to stand up and say categorically that it is not racist to question our immigration policy because that's the knee-jerk reaction from the left that anyone who thinks that we need to limit immigration is racist and we need leadership in this country to stand up and say that is rubbish we have a right to decide as john howard said who comes here and in the circumstances under which they come and that's it's not a racist thing we just want our society to, to build better as as someone i think it was um uh, uh douglas murray said you don't save people by wrecking your own culture. You've got to be careful here, Fred, because you are talking to a migrant. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> well, I'm um, the son of one myself. But look, I'm a migrant who's, who loves this country because I've had the chance to, to get on and do things and, and have a, a very enjoyable, uh, very constructive, I hope, um, uh, career and bring a family up. And that's great. But that's what almost every migrant does. I think what we've got to do is focus on the quality of our migrants. The Productivity Commission have urged the government to do this so they can do it with good backing, good policy backing, to make sure that every migrant here comes equipped to be able to benefit from the chances Australia gives. And that means being employable and, and, and one of the key factors there is the English language. So we have to focus on that. Alan Tudge has been doing some great work in the citizenship portfolio on that. And I, I think I'd like to see the new Prime Minister give him uh, carte blanche to actually start running those 
issues in the public square as, as part of government policy. There's a lot they can do. Numbers is something people are urging them to look at. Uh, but I think that what fundamentally people just want to know that the government is in charge of who comes here and the manner in which they come. Yeah. Um, banks? Banks. Well, <laughs> that one's rolling down the road. I, I think I, I put banks alongside energy. We, you know, the government must not, in fact, they're not uh, be seen to be backing the big corporations on this. Our interest or the interest of the Liberal Party must always be the forgotten people, the battlers, small businessmen, medium sized enterprises where the economic growth and jobs come. And uh, sorry to say that the banks uh, have been shown up on that. And and indeed, the, uh, the, the superannuation savings firms have been up to some sharp behaviour. That has to stop, and, and, and clearly that government has a role in that. But I, th- I think that the way to do that, what, what we should emphasise is competition is always better than regulation. When you say competition, we need a starker competition between the two major parties in the forthcoming election. And I think... One area that I, I wouldn't expect Scott Morrison to uh, to embrace this one, but I think it's got enormous potential. It's the ABC, mate. What what do you think the government? What what sort of policy should we pursue here? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I've got my own views on what's happened. The ABC. So you, <laughs> I, as a political question, though, it's a tricky one because uh, you know people recognise the failings of the ABC, but there's a lot of affection for some aspects of it. You know, people in the country like it. Um, People like classical music like it. You know, there's always a reason that somebody can find one bit or other of it. And it is an institution that's been around for a long time. People are used to it. Uh, but it, it's it's obviously not fulfilling its brief. My, my argument for the ABC is that, is that the government should promise on being re-elected a major new inquiry into the ABC. There hasn't been a substantial one for probably 40 years. And, and in that time, of course, we've had the growth of the internet and all these other things. So we need to look at the, what the ABC's role is in this, in this information-rich world. How much of it do we need? How much of it needs to be delivered on these expensive transmitters occupying this expensive spectrum? How much could be done on the internet? Uh, and how much could be done by other organisations? So yes, let's accept there's a public policy purpose in investing in culture. Uh, through the ABC and other institutions, but let's bring it up to date because the AB, we, we're dealing with the ABC as it was in 1980s, you know, when we only had four or five channels. FM radio had only just come into some areas and, we, and nobody had even heard of the internet. So we clearly need a reset on the ABC. Or, or lifestyle journalism, for that matter, which the ABC's recently embarked on in a major way. I, 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 think, I, I just think it's something that, we need, that needs to be nipped in the bud before it gets out of hand. The longer you put it off reining the ABC in, the harder it's going to be. Yeah, we've, the, well, the question is, what do we need the ABC for? Who's mm. going to answer that? Well, we've left it to the ABC itself. We're not telling the ABC what, what, what it needs to do, where there's a gap in the market or where there's a particular aspect of national life that needs to be raised. I mean, there's a big case, for instance, for having a public broadcaster that does a lot of serious work on education or, or historical documentaries or the arts, you know, these things which don't necessarily get picked up in the commercial sphere and, and Australian drama, but it you know it does very little of that, doesn't it? Most That's of what right. it does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there we go. There's something in the intray for uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison to be dealing with, and when he's got through all that, well, come back to us, Scott, and we'll give you some more. With me today on the Water Cooler podcast is John Slater, Research Associate at Menzies Research Centre, 
John, you've been looking at the business model of modern unions, haven't you, recently? I think that the the question in my mind is how come the unions seem to be declining in their numbers, in their membership, and yet their resources and their wealth and their income appears to be increasing? It is quite an interesting question because if you if you plot union income and union assets over the last 15 years, they have increased far above the rate of inflation and in, in some cases they've experienced stratospheric growth. Now, if you were then to plot that against union membership, um, it tells you virtually the opposite story. Um, it, look, it looks as though unions, if they continue on their current trajectory, are going to go the way of the dodo. Um, and so what, what we've been looking at is considering you know unions in not only elections but under the leadership of Sally McManus, unions are still continuing to play a very prominent role in political debate and in elections. And so we're trying to understand if you know unions by the raw numbers, they look as though their days are numbered. Um, how, how is this business model sustaining itself? And what we found is due to quite large um, policy changes to the workplace relations system in the early 1990s, notably enterprise bargaining. So the move from compulsory arbitration to collective bargaining, and that was a Paul Keating reform. And second to that, compulsory superannuation. Those two key policy changes have underpinned the transition of unions towards a corporate business model, where the key feature is they derive an increasingly large share of their income from sources that are external to their membership. So the amount of money that unions currently derive from membership dues as a share of their overall income is lower now than it has been at any point in history. So, so what, what the member pays each week or each month out of his mm. pay packet, or uh, that, that is not as important to the unions now as other forms of income, is that right? Certainly. And so I think in most cases, membership dues still do make up more than 50 or 60% of overall revenue. But the, but the membership dues have, um, haven't sort of expanded, really. They've stayed pretty steady. Um, and that's a consequence of unions have lifted membership dues above inflation. But where you really see the growth, you see the, the rapid, rapid increase in revenue as compared to even 2001, 2002, is in all these other sort of financial and commercial ventures. Um, and they're, they're quite sophisticated products. You see unions generating revenue out of running training courses, out of all sorts of financial products, particularly redundancy insurance and income protection insurance. Um, and I think that the sort of the key conclusion which I'm drawing from the research that I've done is a lot of this, this revenue is only possible because of the way Australia's workplace relations system is set up. If you look at comparable countries, um, they don't have, I guess, the legislated advantages and legislative privileges that enable unions to effectively monetize their central role in workplace relations in Australia. So it's, it's, a, it's a unique, it's quite an interesting example. Yeah, of- look, the other thing that we have, uh, thanks to the Keating reforms, is a compulsory superannuation, but a compulsory superannuation contribution system in which it, it was designed into the system that some of these super funds, a large number of these super funds would be in effect run by unions in conjunction with industry, but the unions play a big role in them. How much has their involvement in superannuation contributed to their wealth? So it has contributed substantially. 
um, and this is this is probably the whole the the part of the aspect of the modern union business model that's been most thoroughly explored in the media and by think tanks over the past few years. But according to the estimates um, that we're certainly drawing, it isn't actually the majority of the union movement's external income. So superannuation is a sizable revenue stream, but it doesn't fully explain how unions have been able to commercialise their role in workplace relations. And so it's an important piece of the puzzle. Um, But certainly CBUS, for example, Aussie Super, they do donate very sizable amounts to unions in the form of director's fees. Um, But if you look between 2016 and 2017, the union movement spent more than $20 million campaigning in elections. Now, those are, those are estimates, and there's a, there's a pretty strong case that that doesn't actually account for all of the in-kind support. But $20 million in a single year, that isn't fully explicable just by super, industry superannuation. Yeah. Well, we've, there's a lot to say on this topic, and we don't want to give it all away now because I know you've got some fantastic uh, material, some great new information, which we'll be uh, publishing in reports uh, very shortly. Uh, but you've just touched there on the question of political influence. So, uh, you know, the unions pay, what did you say, 20-odd million uh, it, it, to, to help election campaigns. I'm willing to bet that almost all of that goes to the Labor Party. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And, and if you Google this topic, you'll see a few stories where people have said things like, oh, well, in, the, in this particular state, this sub-branch of the CFMEU was handing out how-to-vote cards for the Greens candidate. And there are, if you look, some don't direct donations to the Greens, um, but it's trifling. It's absolutely trifling compared to the Very Labor Party. Because they, they, they're, you know, they're able to buy influence with that. And, um, mm. and I think we should note, I mean, I haven't looked at the most recent returns, but I know in past returns, we've noted that the CFMEU gives money to Bob Catter, for instance. Mm. Now, that's when Bob Catter comes to vote on legislation touching on the unions. That may well weigh on his mind. Absolutely. And another really clear-cut example of that was Senator Glenn Lazarus, who he originally was elected on the Palmer United ticket, I believe. Um, And so he had his, in the double dissolution election in 2016... He had his Senate candidate, I think it was under the, the name Team Lazarus, his, his campaign was almost entirely run by the CFMEU. Um, and the quid pro quo there is, that might be too much of a strong word, but lo and behold, Senator Lazarus was fiercely opposed to the a, ABCC, the um, tough tough new cop on the beat for the construction sector to try and clean up some of the lawlessness and thuggery that we've seen proliferate in construction. So we ha- we see here um, the CFMU is very, very keen to get people like Bob Catter, um, Senator Lazarus, re-elected because it serves their immediate interests and, I guess, their degree of influence over huge sectors of the economy. Yeah, look, we, well, I think we, we, we have to make it clear that we're not suggesting that, that uh, their opinions are being bought. I mean, maybe that was their opinion other, anyway. But clearly, you, the union is not going to give, be giving that money unless it expects to buy influence, one would think, to, a, to an independent candidate like Lazarus or, or Bob Catter. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely the case. And we know in the Labor Party it's a different story where unions have a very clear and powerful direct influence over who is pre-selected. Um, so there you, there you can see 
very a very clear example of institutionalized clout but it is important to note like you say that that clout is actually in fact larger when you look at the, their overall web of involvement in politics yeah so here's another puzzle we've all, you know we've already had one puzzle that's why the unions are so rich when their membership has declined the second puzzle is this why when we hear about vested interests on the media on the abc people talk about you know sugar interests you know that the, there was some suggestion that that our report for instance which came out against sugar tax may have been because we were financed by the, the sugar companies or by coca-cola you know, I mean, well, that's just nonsense. I mean, you can look at our declaration and discover that's not true. Uh, and more recently, a lot of people have been getting into the uh, the IPA, which has taken a particularly a particular stance on the issue of climate change. And people are saying, oh, that's because Gina Reinhart gives them money. That's a vested interest. But, you know, I'm not going to comment on those cases, except to say, if you're looking for a vested interest, if you're looking for a clear case of an institution that gives money directly to politicians and political partners and wants a direct uh, result, which is, uh, you know, favourable treatment of anything relating to the unions or anything related to their interests. There is no clearer vested interest, in my view, than the unions. And yet we never hear them described as that, do we? Why, why don't we talk about unions as a vested interest? Well, I think this is um, something that I've considered in, in my research. And one of the things that I make quite ex- quite explicit at the outset is, um, apart from the the raw findings, we want to challenge the public perceptions around trade unions. And according to my research, those public perceptions are at least three decades out of date. And we still have this quite, I guess, almost romanticised conception of trade unions as a humble workers' collective. Um, And they kind of, you know, it's almost as though they have a de facto claim to the greater good, but when you really dig into the detail and you particularly look at the, the, the financial side of things, it's quite clear that trade unions have their own independent research, sorry, not in, independent research, independent interests, that does not always coincide with the workforce at large. In fact, it's a distinct interest and it doesn't mean that the trade union movement has an unqualified universal right to talk on behalf of workers at large. In fact, they're, they're their own entity um, and they're a, they're a political entity as well as an industrial entity. And I think we do need to, we do need to acknowledge that, that they aren't, they aren't just um, a mouthpiece for the greater good as some people would like us to believe. Well, thank you, John. Uh, we, we'll be talking to you a lot, I think, in coming weeks. We've got some uh, major pieces of research coming out, not just on the trade unions, but on the telecommunications sector. We've got some very interesting stuff to talk about there, but uh, it only remains for me to, 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 uh, to thank you for your contribution, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Perfect. Thanks very much, Nick. Mm-hmm.